Peter Thiel talked about the Bitcoin price, the BTC USD price, is the only unfakeable signal in global markets. Everything else is fake. Because, like, you know, obviously Chinese markets are totally fake, and many of the US markets are actually very fake. Uh, but that signal was a signal of exit, and it was very hard to fake because, you know, it was a real signal. And if that moons, if that moons in time, it is a fire alarm that says that something is wrong and that the money is gone. Right. That is the signal that basically says, you know, boom, like this, like, you know, actually they're hyperinflating the currency. They're printing so much and I'm getting to a safe haven. And once people see that mooning, then that becomes something that other people around the world see and other dollar holders see. And they realize, OK, a new reserve currency is being born. OK. And this is actually probably how Bitcoin becomes what we've always thought it would be, which is the global reserve currency of the world. It's just something that's going to be much more messy, I think, than anybody expected. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor, and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the world's first startup accelerator program focused exclusively on the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what is possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to Wolf nyc.com today to apply for the program or learn more again that is wolf nyc.com hey everybody we're going to start talking about what's going on with this big bitcoin bet hey what's up robert hey man we've got glad seen here yeah so do we just want to start get things going and and lay the framework here robert yeah i think the uh I liked where you suggested we start it, just talking about the general idea, right, of, about Bitcoin eating all the money, and this just seems to be like a trigger event. So I think you would be the man for the job to lay that out. Yeah, so that's obviously the bet in some ways, is that he's essentially betting that 
the markets understand that this thing has no counterparty risk. It has market risk like everything else, but everything else has counterparty risk and this doesn't. And that's something that I think some people are starting to realize right now. So I think that's the bet. And I, I think it's a reasonable bet. I mean, obviously it's a big ass bet. <laughs> it's very bold, but um, hey, it could happen now. It could happen next year. It could happen five years from now. I, I wouldn't want to be taking the other side of the bet. We'll put it that way. Does that make sense? I would be very uneasy about that sort of thing. Yeah, I think in, yeah, in general, this is the thesis that Bitcoiners have long been expressing that, you know, what is the old, I forget who's accredited or attributed with a quote, but there's decades where nothing happened then weeks when decades happen kind of thing. And, uh, you know, I think when, when, when Balaji gets on here, I'm sure he'll explain his case a bit more but he just sees something that maybe most of us don't that the fragility in this existing system is about to rupture and uh you know there's there's nothing there from a thesis standpoint that's different than what bitcoiners have been saying for years and years and years the this big surprising thing here for me is just the timing um which i'm excited as excited as everyone else to hear what he has to say about it yeah, well, I think the other thing to keep in mind is that um, I think most of us are, like, afraid of such a transition, right? Like, obviously, you know, such a transition could 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 include a lot of social unrest. Um, obviously, there's the Trump stuff going on. There's war going on. There's collapse going on in a lot of nations right now. Uh, the Fed is breaking the banking system right now, but they, they just finished breaking dozens of emerging market countries in the last year with their policy. So there's a lot of fear. And, you know, I think we could entertain the possibility that, that it might not go down that way. Like there is a possibility that this transition happens in a way where like the financial markets just reprice things and there's a composition change, but it doesn't necessarily cause like massive social unrest. I'd, I'd at least like to hope that because <laughs> if not, then, um, then it, it is a dark view, but we have Balaji here now. Hello, guys. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. All right. All right. So um, I actually published uh, like a rationale for why I'm thinking what I'm thinking. I'm just going to maybe I can re I'm going to retweet that and uh, I'm going to just kind of read it out and explain just kind of a prepared sort of statement um, because there's a totally different frame on events. Uh, and if you add it all up, it actually is, uh, you know, fairly concerning. And I think my mental model, um, you've been you've been feeling totally independent of me. You've been feeling the heat go up with, um, you know, the the discount window, $150 billion going to banks with, you know, $200 billion bank bankruptcies, you know, overnight with Trump saying he's getting arrested and calling for people in the streets. There's a lot of sources of heat that have absolutely nothing to do with um, anything Bitcoin related. Bitcoin is just the exit um, at this point. And so let me just kind of explain my thesis on where we actually are, which is totally different, I think, from the narrative that, that you might have seen in the mainstream press. So the, it, it is actually a kind of a stunning way of thinking about it. But if you look at, um, can everybody see what I just retweeted? Here, actually, uh, maybe you can share this tweet. But it's like a mini essay. It's got about 14 references. And you should click all those references, and you should look at all those graphs. And the short version, um, I'll, I'll try and give the one-minute, 10-minute, and then 100-minute version with Q&A. The one-minute version is the banks have been insolvent, the central bank and the you know major banks like Bank of America and uh, the small 
you know, regional banks, community banks, um, and the Fed and FDIC uh, and the banks themselves. So the, the central bank, the bank regulars, and the banks themselves have known about this for the last year at least, because this all happened when you know the Fed. Uh, hiked rates after basically saying that it was going to keep them low for a while. And so we essentially have a bunch of crazy looking graphs going down into the right that everybody was aware of within the banking system. But, you know, a good analogy is Uncle Sam Bankman-Fried, just like Sam Bankman-Fried sort of lied to himself and lied to you with the sort of crazy accounting um, that made him seem solvent when he actually wasn't. All of the banks are actually like that. And um, all right, so I'm just going to kind of read it. So just as in 2008, the bankers lied. We should have remembered that they lied. This time, the central bankers, the banks, and the bank regulators have lied to all dollar holders and depositors, not just innocent Americans, but also all of these huge foreign holders of treasuries and other, you know, what's called dollar correlated things. And this isn't your typical fractional reserve situation, which is sort of a built-in instability anyway. Remember, the, the Fed rejected the narrow bank. They wouldn't allow just a pure one-to-one -one bank, as Lynn Alden tweeted about. Um, this isn't your typical fractional reserve situation. The technical way of saying it is, you know, there isn't enough in the banks on a mark-to-market -market basis to cover withdrawals, meaning they're treating something as being worth, you know, $1,000 because they're using this uh, hold-to-maturity accounting it's not worth a thousand dollars actually when it's sold it'd be worth a lot less than that and that means that if you come there and you ask your dollars they don't have it just like you know sbf was doing some crazy accounting on the back and he convinced himself convinced others that he had 100 cents of the dollar but when the actual demand came he didn't right and um they knew this through all of last year and communicated internally in their coded language. And the key phrase is unrealized losses. And if you, you know, look at this, there's, you know, there's a few links uh, that you can look at. Um, so for example, there's the, uh, the Kansas city fed. Okay. Uh, September, 2022 unrealized losses, lowering tangible equity capital. Now all this stuff, by the way, all this stuff within the banking sector, so much of it is written in an intentionally opaque way. And you'll see all these people tweeting things like, lol, tell me you don't know what, you know, uh, an X is without telling me you don't know what an X is. Like, tell me you don't know what a, you know, tangible equity capital is. And the thing is, in 2008, you know what they would have said? They would have said, tell me you don't know what a CDO is without telling me you don't know what a CDO is. And the whole point was that nobody really knew what a CDO was, including the guy selling it. They just used, you know, fancy words and complicated math on top of what was actually a piece of shit, right? Basically houses that didn't have any value. And that's exactly what they've done here, where there's all these kind of complicated words on top of something where fundamentally the money is gone, right? The banks do not actually have assets sufficient to cover their liabilities. And it's not just Silicon Valley Bank. And it's not just Credit Suisse. Uh, and it's not just First Republic. It's hundreds and hundreds of banks. And you don't have to take my word for it. Go and look at this article. Uh, it's called Highlight Colon, Unrealized Losses Lowering Tangible Equity Capital. It's from the uh, Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. Okay, this is months ago. And again, this banker coded language at the end, they say um, <clears throat> at year end, only four community banks. So at the end of 2021, only four community banks had tangible equity capital ratios below 5%. That number increased to 333 at June 3rd, 2022, indicating less ability to sustain economic shocks. You think? And so, you know, they don't actually define what tangible equity capital is. This is like, you know, but basically what they're saying is um, we went from maybe four banks that could be considered insolvent to 333 in a in a year, not even a year, six months. OK, a 75 X increase in like, you know, six months. 
And how did that happen? Well, they actually admit it at the top. They say the rising interest rate environment has led to unrealized loss positions, meaning the Fed, you know, hiked rates and basically devalued all of the bonds that they had sold everybody in the previous year. Now, another thing, by the way, just like I talked about the intentional opacity, another thing about the finance sector that you'll see is the people in it have two simultaneously, you know, sort of contradictory beliefs. And um, the first is that the Fed is all powerful and that, you know, Powell is more powerful than the president and we hang on every word and, you know, our algorithms trigger on every single thing they do, you know, don't fight the Fed, right? And the other thing they also believe at the same time without really seeing the contradiction is they'll say something like, oh, you know, like nobody really listens to the Fed. You know, I, I have my own secret sauce that I add to my you know, forecast. I don't just do it straight. Like, you know, you're responsible for what your own trading strategy is. You can't blame them. If you're smart, you would have hedged, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And this was like kind of a weird thing that I had to kind of squint at as, as kind of an outsider in some ways to this and try and figure out how could they say that, you know, like the Fed was both all powerful and has zero responsibility for anything. I mean, you know, last week, you know, there, there was essentially people were saying that some, you know, immigrant engineer or some, you know, like, like, like startup founder is responsible for diligencing a footnote in their bank's, you know, statements uh, that shows in a footnote that they're insolvent. But Powell isn't responsible for anything. And uh, that doesn't actually make any sense. And there's a reason it doesn't make any sense. And the reason is, why was that insolvency hidden in a footnote? Why was it only discovered, you know, through a bank run? Well, as you'll find out, the bank regulators and the banks and the central bank were aware of all the banks being insolvent and just did not notify you, the depositors. Okay, I know how crazy that sounds, so, but that's literally what has happened. Go ahead. Is this is this an SV? So you're saying what happened to Silicon Valley Bank is effectively infected the entire commercial banking sector? No, well, sort of in reverse. Every bank, every okay. bank was affected by essentially what happened. The technical way of talking about it, see, it's like encoded in all of this jargon and what have you. But the technical way of talking about it is. Um, there's a New York Times article um, from August 25th, 2021. Banks are binging on bonds, but not because they want to. Okay, so if, you know, basically, what happened with all the printed money, uh, consumer loans. You know, consumers weren't taking out loans anymore, and uh, you know, banks did think maybe there might be inflation. But at the same time, through 2021, even up until November 3rd, 2021, Powell was saying he'd be patient on you know uh, hiking rates. Uh, Kashkari said, you know, I think June 2021 that, you know, we'll keep rates low until 2023. And so in that environment, these banks were like, okay, our best bet is just buy a ton of bonds at even low percentage rates. Here's a quote from that New York Times article, August 25th, 2021. Um, uh, when the yield rose to around 1.75%, banks hungry for uh, higher returns rushed to buy them. The thing is, this quickly gets technical, but the short version is the Fed faked out all the banks. It sold them a huge, huge, huge amount of, of bonds. And it told them uh, it was going to be, you know, selling something roughly the same for a while. And then suddenly, after Powell got renominated, uh, he devalued all of them and stuck all the banks with surprise, massive devaluations of all the assets they just sold them. So what did the banks do? The banks were like, oh, crap. And so the banks went to these bank CPAs, and there's this uh, article called kind of a smoking gun, rising rates and considerations for health and maturity classification, okay? And so this fun article, and again, all of this is in that, you know, tweet. I'll actually, I'll pin the tweet for a second so you guys can see it. Let me pin it. 
Okay, I'll pin it to my profile. Okay, so you guys can see this tweet and just read the references. All right. So the this um you know this uh, article from ID Bailey or what have you. Okay, if you go and look at the uh, the Open Graph preview of this, um, what they're literally saying is um, <clears throat> wondering what you should do in reaction to large losses. We've got you covered. Held to maturity classification. In other words, this article is about uh, you know how anxious bankers with their huge losses can hide it <laughs> with this accounting trick. And uh, then it's okay because then they preserve their regulatory stuff because all they care about is how they look to the regulators. No one cares about the actual depositors except if they're actually going to poke around and find out. Okay, That's all the way back in April 2022. So in short, the Fed surprised the banks and the banks decided to surprise you. And I think, you know, the things I can get into all the mechanics of this. But, you know, like the you guys know the meme, like the 50 IQ guy, 100 IQ, 150 IQ guy. You know that thing? I've seen, I've seen the memes. The memes yeah. right? So, like, the quote, the, the dumb version is... Don't trust the banks. They're just lying to you. They're just trying to screw you with something in the fine print, blah, blah. And then the 100 IQ would be like, no, no, no. Banks are a pillar of our society, blah, 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 blah. But what I've just kind of discovered on this is actually like that, uh, you know, with poking into this, because the whole thing is set up to sort of intimidate people from kind of poking into it and finding out, you know, do you actually have the money, right? Just like the mortgage crisis of 2008. Like, no banker, it's weird, 15 years later, people have forgotten the lessons of 2008, which is don't even trust these guys when, you know, if their mouth is moving, you know? Like, the, the, the level of lies is actually bananas, right? They're basically their own tribe of central bankers, bankers, and, you know, bank regulators that is distinct from the tribe of the depositors who are like, you know, their victims slash customers or whatever, right? And what they, what they basically did is over the last year is they were just trying to figure out how do we hide the fact that we have these gigantic unrealized losses. That's a key phrase, okay? And if you look at this tweet that I've pinned, there's links to the Fed, to FDIC, to FDIC again, to the Fed, to the bank CPAs. It's like five links all through before the SVB crash showing that they were aware that, you know, in that, in that Fed link, literally hundreds of banks were insolvent, okay? But you know, most of the time, people don't discover that insolvency because they don't actually try to get all of their money back at once, right? There isn't a, quote, bank run. So, you know, exactly what they were thinking about doing, I don't know. Is, it, is there some centralized plan? I mean, the Fed is centralized, but, like, it's also chaotic, right? Can I ask you about the centralized like, um, Balaji, let me just uh, real quick. So, basically, you're, you're betting that the asymmetric information framework we've had, where, like, some of us know what Bitcoin is, we know... It's the only digital asset with no counterparty risk. Yes. We know it's very valuable. We know that most people don't understand this. You're basically betting that this is a trigger moment for like the market to like snap into understanding for that. Look, uh, you know, I'm not a Bitcoin maximalist, but we are all Bitcoin maximalists now. Okay. Bitcoin is the exit. It is the one asset that is not going to be seized. I mean, basically, everybody's kind of known. Let me let me actually go in an interactive way, okay? So just to summarize what I just said, hundreds of banks are insolvent. The central bank, the banks, and the banking regulators themselves all hid this with various kinds of accounting tricks that were approved in the space. And they were just trying to like sl- let it slide forever and hope that something changed. And then it exploded when, uh, you know, one guy, when, when Bern Hobart looked through the, you know, ridiculously long bank filings and so on and found in a footnote that somehow this bank, you know, this long SEC filing, it buried in a footnote that, it, you know, had a negative $80 billion 
um, you know, a classification and, and hold to maturity of $80 billion is like this gigantic increase. So essentially, they buried their insolvency in literally a footnote. And he figured it out. And that's actually what led to the SUV bank run. And uh, the thing about it is all the banks are like that. And what's about to happen this week, if you, if you Google the term discount window, Okay. You again, they use all this terminology and so on to confuse you and, you know, like 15 different definitions of the money supply, blah, blah, blah. But the discount window is pretty clear. Um, essentially, a bunch of these insolvent banks, um, with the, which Wall Street Journal, by the way, if you Google Wall Street Journal, uh, dozens of banks uh, may have risk similar to Silicon Valley Bank. Okay. Um, so you put it together, there's like 185, 186 banks prone to similar risks. Uh, all these banks are at the so-called discount window with this new printing program that, that the Fed just set up. They've got $150 billion that's come in. So what they've decided to do, everybody knew they were going to monetize the debt. Like we all knew that, right? Robert, you knew they were going to monetize the debt. Well, yeah, that's what the central bank is designed to do. That's right. No question. And they've, they've done it gradually for a long time. Dalio knows they're going to monetize the debt. Alex, did you know they were going to monetize the debt? Well, they've been doing it for a long time and they're going to continue to do it. So, yeah. Exactly. Right. So we all knew that. So strategically, they don't have surprise, but tactically, they had surprise until this, because the way they've decided, or whether I call it even decided, whether it's conscious or it's like, think of an ant colony, right? It's a bunch of ants doing their own thing. And it's like, but the ant colony kind of moves, right? Whether it's decentralized, centralized, doesn't actually matter. I'm just going to talk about it as the, the emergent decision is to monetize the debt in the messiest way possible with an orgy of money printing and bank runs basically this week. If you add on top of that, like Trump's claim to rest and him calling for guys in the streets, okay, this week is going to be, unfortunately, madness, all right? And uh, again, this has absolutely nothing to do with, with me or with tech or with Bitcoin or anything like that. This is a completely fed cause situation as all those timestamps show, right? Everybody here is like, coding or you're you know thinking about you know math AI, whatever all that stuff okay the banks bankrupted the banks and they wanted to pin it on somebody or the emergent system decided oh it's a great opportunity to pin it on somebody but now it's hard for them to pin it on. i mean they're just printing and it's just going to be absolute chaos because all the banks wouldn't get like 150 billion or whatever in in this discount borrowing right did you see the robert do you see my qt of your thing with that discount borrowing thing do you see that uh, I, I don't see that actually. Here. I do have a question. You're ready though. Please. Okay. So just real quick, uh, to decrypt this for the audience, perhaps monetize the debt. What we're basically saying is there's an implicit default on the debt occurring through fiat currency supply inflation, right? They're printing money to paper over unpaid, otherwise unpayable debts. I think is, that's what we mean when we say monetize the debt. Yes. My question for you is, you mentioned the possibility of a centralized plan. Uh, I think the most obvious centralized plan would be the corralling of people into a central bank digital currency. Right. So, so as I see it, the commercial banking sector is the only impediment to a full-blown CBDC. So isn't this just the central bank flexing its powers to try and wipe out the impediment of the commercial banking sector? Well, so here's the thing. Basically, you know, like my... My take on a lot of these guys is um, they're kind of like a meta organism where I don't know if any of them has actually any master plan, um, but it's sort of like think about how, in a sense, um, like a decentralized currency and a centralized currency can facilitate a payment, but in very different ways. 
right? Like one is sort of conscious and centralizing plan, the other is an emergent property of a community, right? So, but I'll talk about it. Let me talk about it as if there was a centralized plan, but it's like called it an emergent plan, right? The emergent plan is sort of something like this, or like, let's say the V2 plan, which is, um, it is essentially the combination of hyperinflation, uh, destroy all of the local banks, because um, if you're seeing these big banks that are normally competitors are in the fog of war, snapping up, you know, First Republic or credit, like all the too big to fail banks are, quote, bailing out. But what are they bailing out these small banks with, with, you know, basically like some of the money that was effectively loaned to them by the um, by the Fed. Right. So it is effectively a stealth nationalization where tons of money is printed and then the big banks, the too big to fail banks are snapping up the small banks and others are just being set on fire. And the end state of that is exactly what you're saying, which is uh, people are like, oh my God, my small bank won't work. And the false door is for them to flee to a big bank, to send all their wires to a big bank, right? Because a small bank is set on fire, your regional community bank is set on fire. It was, you know, basically um, devalued by the Fed. Can I, Audie, can I just add like a, can I add a political element sure. to what you're yep. saying? I guess what we're talking about here is the nationalization of bank deposits. That's right. That's and I mean that both in the, in the financial sense and in the political sense, meaning, you know, the government's going to get to determine which bank deposits are valid and not. You know, I think that we're, you know, a ways away, obviously, from any sort of operational CBDC. Oh. But that's the point of the CBDC well, is that's the point of the CBDC in 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 theory is to remove the power of the private sector and of the commercial banking sector uh, and just go straight to have this relationship between the state and the citizen with money um, and, and replace cash and have this like liability of the central bank that you have in your pocket that they can do easy stimulus with and they can do blacklisting and censorship and surveillance in a very easy manner without having to deal with the tech sector or with the banking sector. And that's that's why the Chinese government's pushing a CBDC is it's tired of fighting with these big tech companies. That's right. So, you know, it, I'm not I'd be careful about saying we're going to see opera, opera, you know, op, an operationalization of you having a credit on your phone. That's like actually a liability of the fed you know in the next year or whatever but this paves the way for it for sure well, but what i think it's, yeah. it's but just to finish yeah. my last point like what it what it immediately paves the way for is it, as we saw yellen be interviewed in congress the other day the total political politi you know the you know politicization of bank deposits like basically the fed will determine what's important and not in concert with the treasury and and the government will start to sort of really take over this aspect of life which which at one point was was it was was a very private sector thing you know 100 plus years ago so we're, we're we're witnessing the end of that and at the same time you know again my interpretation of your bet is that people have a choice there's this optional thing that's popped out that's that people have this plan B and that maybe that maybe the collective realization is now that that this is a this is an insurance policy on on that happening. That's right. Um, that's that's my interpretation of your bet. And I, I, again, I probably wouldn't make your bet, but I certainly wouldn't bet against it. And I think that this is going to happen at some point in the next decade. And who knows when we should just be humble about the fact that we just don't know when it's going to happen. Yeah. So so a couple of thoughts on that. So first is, did you see Fed now? Yeah, they're moving along. Yeah. yeah, they're like, wait a second, we've got progress. Yeah, so exactly. So March 15th, in the middle of this gigantic crisis, okay, which was obviously a stop the presses kind of thing where they announced this, they also found the time to announce the launch of FedNow, which is people have called it, quote, CBDC light. Maybe it's not so light. If at the end of all of these bank runs, it's effectively something where, you know, all the small banks, community banks, banks that are, you know, run in Republican states or tech banks, basically, they're, the, you know, if you want to be really actually talking about the tribes, right, blue tribe versus gray tribe versus red tribe, 
Blue Tribe has gone after the tech banks, like the, you know, for um, like, like SVB and, and Silvergate and so on. But it's also actually going after the red banks, all these community banks. Um, and again, whether it's intentional or not, or emergent, kind of doesn't matter. The emergent is this, right? So all of those, you know, the tech banks, uh, the red banks get, you know, destroyed for, for different reasons and are effectively nationalized by the too big to fail banks, which uh, then, of course, I mean, banks are already terrible. But if there's, um, if there's only like three or four or five or whatever of them, they're even worse. And then you've corralled everybody in over here, and then it's really easy to do a CBDC. But the other thing is that I hadn't thought about a hyperinflation and CBDC happening at the same time with all the small banks getting wiped out or, or acquired. And that is, uh, that's not really nice, right? That's not, that's not good at all. That basically gets you to like, you know, I mean, it gets you to a China-like state. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. It looks like a mini iPhone, a little touch screen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized U.S. dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Just to interject a yeah. very brief thing, the, the fear of a lot of the commercial bank folks when they, when they get interviewed about CBDCs, of course, is that in times of um, prosperity and, and bubble and stimulus, it's fine. But like in times of risk and danger, everybody will withdraw their, their funds from commercial bank um, you know, uh, assets uh, over to CBDCs because they'll have the full protection of the government because it's a direct liability of the Fed. That's like the fear of a lot of people on the commercial side of things. So, you know, I think you think it, it could go down exact, exactly as, as, as you say, I suppose. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing is basically if the commercial banks, the local banks were the barriers to a CBDC, and they're suddenly all just wiped out and destroyed and this gigantic chaos and loss of trust. And the only people people think people trust is bigness, right? And why do they trust the bigness? Because the Fed causes the crisis with one hand by devaluing all these bonds. And, you know, that it, it fakes out the local banks. It has them buy huge amounts of bonds. They got huge amounts of deposits with the pandemic, right? They, it, it fakes them out, has them buy these huge bonds. It devalues all of them. It crashes them to zero, but it doesn't bail them out directly. It gives it to the big banks to like acquire them. But essentially in the process of this, 
like already 150 billion dollars has hit the bank do you see the graph that i posted where it's like literally just going yeah right? no it's insane but it's also operation choke point as nick yes. carter keeps pointing out like 2.0 because now they can say oh you do you do business with cannabis you do business with bitcoin you do business with prostitution they, they can like decide guns whatever like they can just decide a sector and they can just say oh we're not gonna now we're not gonna backstop you and i mean that's a that's like an extinction thing moving forward yeah, basically that's right. like if you're using government money that's not guaranteed and other people are using government money that is guaranteed i mean it's it's game over that's exactly right and actually punk 6529 who might be in the chat or, or something he had a really good post a while back which is that there's no practical freedom without freedom to transact, right? For example, you want to buy a sign to protest. Well, maybe you can't do that because that vendor is, you know, marked bad with the CBDC, right? Like literally if every single action, they can do things like the money depreciates out of your account unless you spend it right now. And moreover, you can't exit the system. I mean, can you can you move your data off of Facebook? Not really, right? So you might be able to buy physical goods and you carry them, but you can't actually carry out your liquid net worth and anything that probably was something that would allow capital flight, they could stop. And the reason we know that's possible, at least, is China's rolling out a bunch of those things. Um, and so, you know, the the threat is real, right? But just what, one more thing to um, to stir the pot, and then I'll, sure. I'll let you react. Um, you know, in the global south, we, we see things uh, differently in terms of uh, how economies uh, face crises like this. Like a typical uh, global south economy has very, very high interest rates and very, very high inflation. Um, and, you know, what what we may be starting to see here potentially is w what you would call deflation, like literally deflation, like the economy is going to shrink potentially, like you're going to have a massive crash where credit is destroyed, right? Like in a normal crash scenario, this is a deflationary event. But I think people have been misled to think that in a deflationary event, you know, you wouldn't have um, high inflation in the currency. That's not true at all. And in fact, that's the norm in the global south. Like what you see is economies shrink and, and get destroyed and contract and deflate while at the same time, the local currency gets massively devalued. This is just like normal in, in emerging markets or in the global south. Like for most of the world's population, this is what they deal with. Like if you look at Egypt right now, this is what's happening. So, so domestic stocks get um, slaughtered. Domestic bonds get slaughtered. Um, food and energy gets really expensive. Uh, some scarce assets like gold might get really, that might have developed a huge premium. But a lot of the financial stuff that people trade around, you know, crashes also. So, you know, I think there's a chance we see something like that here if, if your bet, you know, happens at any point where you see like food and energy and things like Bitcoin and real estate, some real estate and gold, you know, have a premium, but like a lot of other things like get trashed. I mean, I, so I think we need to open our minds to like, things might be different this time around. Yes. You know, it, it, if, if, the, if the reserve currency stuff starts to get called into question, it won't look like this anymore. It'll look more like what it looks like for most people in the world. And they can teach us about what that kind of experience looks like and what you need to do to prepare yourself. Uh, and I'll end there. That's right. And exactly. And the thing is, you know, like as an immigrant, uh, many people who are immigrants are familiar with a situation where they, you know, basically things go to hell, like pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, people from China, people from Russia, people from Vietnam, you know, people from Iran, like people from Eastern Europe, South America, much of the world has had a lot of tragedies, unfortunately, you know, this, this uh, last century, and even the last few decades. And so it is this thing where, you know, in, at least in the US, you kind of flip the channel and you say, oh, you know, that sucks for them over there. You know, some guys with, you know, some chaos and you just flip to, I don't know, some, some TV show. Okay. 
But to your point about why is quote, this time different? Now, by the way, this concept, you know, within banking or whatever, they'll say, when anybody says this time is different, they'll be, they'll just quote that and be like, oh, of course, haha, you're saying this time is different. That means you're stupid. And of course, the opposite of this time is different means things never change, right? And what they've done is they've taken a quote, which, uh, you know, I, I guess was in some other context, like talking about a deal that wouldn't work, and then reinterpreted to mean nothing ever changes, this time is never different, it's always the same, or whatever. It's just it's kind of mindless kind of use of the language. But things do change. And one of the thing about the big differences versus the 2008 crisis. So in the 2008 crisis, which, by the way, we're already beyond in terms of the uh, the discount borrowing level. So I'll just quote from this um, this QC thing. Again, just like I knew this, but it's good to see the, you know, the U.S. media admitting it. The Fed's discount window is lending to banks at 2008 levels. Banks recently borrowed $152 billion from the Fed plus new from, from a new emergency loan program. So shattering records. So we're already past 2008. Okay, so therefore, comparisons to 2008 are not off base. In 2008, um, though there was, quote, a financial crisis, people know that we, quote, printed our way out of it. And uh, what that means is actually two things. First, it does mean like the, quote, American taxpayer bailed out the banks. That is true. But the second and less well understood thing that you're well aware of, I think, Alex, is that the world bailed out America. All the dollar holders abroad, inflation was exported there. And this was at least picked up and reported on like the Arab Spring. All the chaos caused there was in part because of food prices. Like that guy set him, poor guy set himself on fire in part because of food prices. You recall that, Alex? Yeah, yeah. And Robert, have you studied that? Do you know about that? Like the, ex- the exporting of inflation from the U.S.? Well, yeah, so the deal with that is you've got 330 million U.S. citizens. We have four and a half billion dollar holders or dollar users worldwide. So when we print dollars, we're exporting, you know, exporting in quotation marks, 90% of that inflation. Now, that's not perfect because that's based on number of people, not actual um, capital accumulated in those hands, but it's a rough proxy, I think, for what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. And one thing about it, by the way, is the system has evolved. And when I say evolved, by the way, I mean, like, literally, like, evolution. You know, for example, nobody designed a chameleon. Okay, it just managed to have this kind of camouflage, right? Nobody designed the so-called mimic octopus. Google the mimic octopus. Nobody designed the beetles that kind of look like their surroundings. What what has happened is finance has evolved such that everything that was like easy to understand and whatnot uh, just basically got selected against because then people could see how the other guy was screwing them, right? The thing is, finance a lot of it is so zero sum that. Um, person A to sell something to person B, like, you know, on Wall Street, they'll say something like, how are you screwing me, right? Because it's so zero sum. And uh, within Wall Street, they know to kind of be suspicious of each other, I guess. But but outside, people still trust banks. But coming back to your point, everything in the financial system is optimized to sort of hide how they're screwing you. And so that's why it's like, oh, you can't get like an exact figure on how many dollars there are. You can't get an exact figure on how much people are being taxed effectively to hold the dollar, all the dollar holders, how much are people being inflated? The whole thing is sort of set up such that it's complicated enough that it's hard to actually account for that. It's not like 21 million Bitcoin, right? right? The, 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 the other important thing is that it's not like 2020. This is, you know, they're not like doing massive fiscal in terms of putting money in our bank, uh, you know, in our retail bank, uh, bank accounts. This is more like, again, what people experience in the emerging markets where like the system starts to crumble from the from the inside and you see like these kind of structural adjustment policies come into play so you know our societies don't want that like britain right now has an energy price cap right so they're like um draining their reserves and risking price inflation 
so that the people don't get angry. That's like a luxury that we can do in our societies in like the, in the advanced economies for now. I mean, a lot of these countries, Japan, Switzerland, they have these massive reserves of U.S. treasuries that are, you know, 800 billion, one trillion dollars that they can draw down on just in case some shit goes down. But eventually, if the if the quality of those treasuries starts to get called into question, you know, that 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 causes what you're trying to say, Balaji, basically. So, so you're basically, again, making a bet that that moment's going to happen in the next 90 days. Well, it, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's kind of it's sort of already happening. I mean, in the sense of that graph where like I, I posted the bit signal tweet before that, you know, you see the bit signal where like the graph goes vertical like that, right? I posted that before uh, the, the discount window graphs came online, to my knowledge, at least it looks like all of them are stamped two or three hours or whatever later, right? Um, so, so that's exactly what one would predict. And I think one of the biggest differences, so a few big differences from 2008, okay? The first is social media is, you know, not just built out, but people have been on social media for a while. There's all kinds of crises that have happened on social media. That was not the case in 08. Number two, Bitcoin exists. So there's actually an exit to the dollar. Number three, and this is totally different from Bitcoin, and this is actually the bad part, uh, you know, the China, Russia, it's a, like a bunch of countries have already been you know, doing a fair amount of progress on non-dollar denominated trades, as, as you're probably aware, right? All the petrodollar stuff. So it's kind of like how remote work was at like 20, 30 something percent or whatever percent prior to the pandemic, and then just went totally vertical afterwards, right? The pandemic, you know, took those things that were existing solutions and then made them push them from 20% or 30% share or whatever it was to like 70 or 80% share. I think that's going to happen across the board because, one of the other big differences with 2008 is, at least I did not remember bank runs in, in 2008 in the same way. Uh, like I didn't remember, you know, frantic consumers, right? It was all sort of enterprise markdowns and, you know, it was like on the back end. It wasn't like the liquid front end assets you're checking account. I might be wrong about that. I may be. I mean, the, the psychology of social media is, I mean, we saw it. It's terrifying what happened the other weekend. Um, no, it, 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 it really is. Well, as here's the thing. I mean, there's both a good and a bad to social media, right? Obviously, there's a bad. There's also a good, which is if there is a fire, if there's digital fire, see, they can't print. And like if anybody is finding that the money is gone, right, in one of their banks and it's out and it's in like the middle of the Midwest or something like that. And our guy's finding out that's true in Florida, right? Like they can, that can be communicated now and integrated in a way that's outside the mainstream media. And, you know, like the thing is, you know, of course, one doesn't want to, quote, panic. But it is also true that there are times when you need to be like, mm, you know, maybe there's a fire and maybe I want to, in a calm and, you know, straightforward way, exit the building. And well, one other one other thing to be really clear, like I, I'm very pro American values. I think that the American government's done a lot of things that are um, shameful and criminal, et cetera. But I, I, I think that what ends up happening here is not it's not great for like other dictate, like dictatorial powers. Like I see a lot of people on here, you know, really excited about whatever it's the Chinese or the Saudis or the Russians. And I, I you know, I'm obviously very against that. And I think that's not going to work because those systems rely on three things, confiscation, censorship, and closed capital markets. That's how like the Chinese and Saudis and Russians run themselves. Um, the United States at its core and its DNA is about free speech, property rights, and open capital markets. So I think on the other end of this thing, America comes out really strong. I'm pretty bullish on America in like 15, 20 years here still. I, but that doesn't mean that our currency won't start to collapse 
into something else. The thing is, for most other countries, again, they've already seen this before. Anyone here from Egypt or Turkey or Argentina can come on here to us and teach us about when things start to shake, everybody goes to dollars. Yeah, so the new thing is, with social media and Bitcoin out there, and with several hundred million people worldwide with cryptocurrency, and also, crucially, um, there are banking rails that are outside the U.S., right? And there are a lot of dollar holders outside the U.S. And I think it will be challenging. I mean, the, the you know, I, I don't have a map of all the crypto banks or whatever worldwide, but I think it will be challenging to block all of the exits, right? They have shut down Signature and they shut down um, Silvergate. And as Nick Carter and I think Xerox Fubar documented, those were not, you know, Signature wasn't a bank run. It was a, it was a murder, right? It wasn't actually insolvent, right? And so they're, they're kind of blocking, again, in like an emergent way, okay, you know, but I don't think they can block all of the world's exits to Bitcoin because, you know, there's many countries that are, you know, like neutral or what have you. And I think also a lot of, um, a lot of average Americans, by the way, like, like you, of course, I'm, I'm very pro the average American, but also like the average American, I am not very pro the US government, right? And I think, now, you know, the difference between the two will be extremely obvious where like the government or you know, at least specifically the media, the central banks, the banks and the banking regulators have literally covered up a mass insolvency and tried to just like have it blow up in a fog of war kind of thing. So everybody's confused about what's happening. But if you take a look at those references, the most important thing you can take home from that is that the banks, the banking regulators and the central bankers knew that the banks were insolvent and a huge crash was coming, the unrealized losses, but they never knew about the posters. Go ahead. Can we talk about the magnitude of the quantitative easing you're expecting to see here? Like, I know we talked offline that they're basically going to monetize all of the debt. So what does that mean? Does that mean $30 trillion in QE is coming down the pipe in the next short order well also just to just to, they like they, the so they did nine trillion yeah they did nine trillion of, of government securities and real estate uh between the end of the gfc and and 20 and early 2022 and again most of that was not reflected in 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 in, in cpi in like the inflation that we would normally talk about because it didn't come into your you know into the whatever the real economy but it made the most massive uh asset bubble of all time right so the question is, are they going to do something more similar to that where the effects are more similar to that? And I, I again, I'm I'm thinking this is actually a deflationary event in terms of the size of the economy starting to shrink because this fiat bubble is just so big. I don't know if it can get any bigger, but you see certain things get more expensive and you see the currency devalue. That's like my main sort of thesis here. Yeah. So one thing about it, by the way, Robert, is um, they're not calling it quantitative easing this time. They're calling it uh, the BTFP program and so on. Like, and part of the goal here is just keep changing the words so that, you know, somebody who doesn't know everything can, can seem and look stupid or whatever. But, um, basically one thing you can track is, uh, and I've got a, a thing here on this, you know, when, when the so-called BTFP program, actually the best article to read on this is Arthur Hayes's article, Crypto Hayes, right? Awesome, awesome article on uh, exactly if you want the 150 IQ version of exactly how they're screwing you and you want every mechanical detail and, and so on, uh, you know, he will he will give that to you. But uh, if, if you don't want that, you can just look at the fact that the money going to the banks is going vertical and then you can figure out later the exact, I don't know, velocity and magnitude of the tsunami that's about to hit. Right. Um, and this uh, the thing about in terms of the amount uh well 
I, the, the difference with this one is like, it just feels very perceptible. It is something where it is, I mean, you didn't have 40, I mean, 40,000 companies were banking at SVB, this 40 year old institution. And one day they woke up and they learned that the money was gone, right? That is, the, the, and, and, and this is very important, they were then blamed for, you know, running a business checking account and wanting a bail. Now, let me just talk about that for a second, because that's some, if you're on misinformation, okay? If you're walking down the street, um, or actually, let me put it like this. Let's say, let's say you went to Mogadishu, okay? Um, and you wanted a helicopter airlift, okay? That's a bailout. That's like taking a very high-risk activity and wanting someone else to pay for it, Okay. But if you're walking down the street and someone attacks you and you want police to help you, that's that's a paid for. You took a low risk activity and your basic like taxes with your subscription, you know, as a citizen, however you want to term it, um, that should pay for that. Right. And similarly, sure, if you make a risky investment or something like that, that's, you know, and you want your money back, that's a bailout. But to like want the bank regulator who's salary you're effectively paying to tell you that your bank is insolvent and give you some warning of it before a bank run, that's a paid for. And so the most important question that any depositor at SVB can ask is, why did the Fed and uh, the FDIC know about the insolvency, not just of SVB, but every other bank, and allow them to just, you know, blow up in bank runs, right? That is the most important question, because when you ask that question and that, you know, like when you add it up that when you have that lens on the thing and you look at the links that I put there, look at links one, two, three, four and five in, in my you know, pinned tweet. OK, when you when you realize that they knew that the banks were insolvent, but didn't tell the depositors, which includes all of you, every one of you has a deposit of the U.S. bank. Right. Uh, if you go and read that language with an eye towards, oh, wait a second, they actually knew that uh, the, the banks were insolvent. Then yeah, there's like a there's a difference between you know that that's not a bailout. That's something where the the state is like conspiring against you, or at least it's not certainly not doing its job. And what you paid for didn't didn't come through, right? Um, right. So, so, so like again, the moment is is do people start to realize that every single institution, family unit, nation state, whatever, should have some percentage of this other thing that can never be frozen or confiscated if it's used properly. That literally has no counterparty risk. That's that's the question. And, you know, maybe it doesn't happen here and maybe we coast along and it is what it is. But that will happen at some point. I mean, people here should know that that will happen this decade. And you, you want to think of yourself on the other side of that moment and think, well, what would I do differently if I had known that this was coming? You should just run that thought exercise. I think it's a very helpful thing to do. My estimation, you know, I always say that pain is information. Most people learn the hard way kind of running their head into the wall and, and getting damaged by all this. So maybe a way to reformulate that question, Balaji, is what is the total shortfall of these insolvent banks across the country? Like, how- I have, I, So I shouldn't say I have no idea, but let me let me actually quote you some numbers, okay? Uh, the, the, the answer is I can approximate it by, like, for example, um, FDIC unrealized gains on, and loss on investors. I'm going to quote this FDIC report to you, okay? This is from two days... Uh, March 6, 2023, two, three days before the SUV thing. Okay. So Martin Grunberg, FDIC chairman, not some random guy. Okay. The main guy. Uh, <clears throat> the total of these unrealized losses, including securities that are available for sale or held to maturity, was about $620 billion at year end 2022. Okay. $620 billion is a lot of money. And that's just, you know, like the, the ones that he's counting up there. And, you know, I, 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 there's the whole system is, as I said, set up for opacity. 
But if you do look at the graphs that they themselves are putting out, right, the ones, again, the ones at the bottom of my pinned tweet, um, the graph of the Fed's weekly remittances to Treasury or the unrealized losses on the investment securities or the uh, the tangible equity capital of the community banks, they're all just down and to the right. And they're down and to the right in like, a, um, you know, even an outsider can see this is like 6, 7x off or just completely different than what there was there before. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it. Legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. Like, I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? (laughs) So with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy to use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Bitcoin Conference 2023. This three-day event will be held May 18th through 20th in Miami Beach. Uh, This is going to be the biggest event of the year, as it always is. And the past two years in Miami have simply been amazing. Uh, Day one's industry day. Days two and three are going to be open to general admission. And I'd say this is a great place to go and network with Bitcoiners or even look for a job. Uh, Just a really all-around great experience. There's a fantastic speaker lineup, including Michael Saylor, Zoltan Pozar, Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, many others. And last year, we did a 10 million sats giveaway for this event, and we're going to do it again this year. So to get discounted tickets and enter for a chance to win 10 million sats, go to b.tc slash conference and use code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. In a real sense, and again, this is a very macro way of thinking about it. You know, people have been saying like America's living on borrowed time, right? This is like the balloon payment coming at the end. If you take out debt, right, um, which you shouldn't do, okay? But if you did, 
often at the very end, there's like one giant payment. And um, in a sense, though, you know, it's, it's, it's like not exactly that, but like you can kind of think of it like that. The bill is finally coming due for years or decades or whatever, wherever you want to date it of like this crazy money printing. And it's all coming due at once. And it's coming due in, or they've either decided or emergently decided to have it come due in the messiest fashion possible, which is like bank runs on like 100 banks this week. And when I say 100, by the way, where am I coming up with that number? Well, you know, on March 11th, um, you know, everybody was saying, oh, you know, these you know evil tech guys, I can't believe they took risky bets, you know, with their... Um, with their, with their tech things and so on. But the only bet that SVB took that was like super risky in retrospect was buying treasury bonds and long-term government bonds. And then people were like, oh, they should hedge interest rate risk. Well, if every single bank is going down in the same way, is that a bank problem or is that a central bank problem, right? It's clearly a central bank issue. And so March 11th, that's what I said. I said, what we're likely to see in the coming weeks is that this wasn't a single bank's issue, it was a central bank issue. And this was just as this SVB crisis was starting. And everyone's trying to pin it on, you know, oh, tech guys must have made some bets. They didn't. And then, you know, like 10 days ago-ish, there were, there were zero dead banks. Now there's five dead banks, which are Silvergate, SVB, um, Signature, Credit Suisse, First Republic. Dead banks are a pretty big deal, right? Because one, one dead bank includes hundreds of billions of dollars, you know, often of, of assets, right? And now the Wall Street Journal has admitted and basically confirmed, you know, this and it probably waited until, you know, this time to put it out because it wanted the printed money to be there. But dozens of banks may have risks similar to Silicon Valley Bank. In a new study, economists said they found 186 banks that may be prone to similar risks. Well, again, that Fed report from from um, uh, from September 2022, right? Uh that was saying something very similar. It was saying uh, the tangible equity capital, the underlies loss in t- tangible equity capital was saying 333 community banks, uh, you know, had less ability to sustain economic shocks because of these mounting losses, right? So it was pretty clear to me. And, and again, if you notice, like I'm providing citations here, right? I'm, I'm providing charts, I'm providing figures. I've decoded enough of this to get the scale of it. Uh, and I, I knew this was coming about a week ago, what I didn't like fully get was that that they were, you know, that they were basically going to think of this as like a digital Pearl Harbor of all dollar holders. OK, the Federal Reserve itself is basically surprise attacking every dollar holder with a surprise devaluation of their dollars. Now, you know why that's not surprising? Because that's actually what they did in 2022. In 2022, one thing you'll find, even like, you know, Talib who's yelling online, he admits that long-term treasuries, like buying, you know, betting on the long-term health, long-term financial health of the United States of America in 2021 was like one of the worst bets you could make because uh, everybody who did that, who bought the 10-year bonds or, or whatever there, you know, not just treasuries, but long, long-dated long bonds, got absolutely destroyed in 2022. So in 2021, if you think about it, the worst bet was betting on the long-term financial health. And today, the worst bet is what some people are making where they're going into uh, like three month treasuries or something that's going to lock up their cash for like three months. So now the worst bet is betting on the short term financial health of the USA, unfortunately, because if you lock up the money that way, you're subject to obviously illiquidity risk and then devaluation risk because the dollar is worth less, right? So your purchasing power declines. Obviously, you're paying something for locking it for three months. You don't get a 5% interest rate or whatever it is for, for nothing. You, you're sacrificing illiquidity and devaluation risk, but that's usually not a concern until now. 
And with billions and billions and billions of dollars flying around, the single most important thing to know is don't send your money to the big banks. Do put it into Bitcoin. And the reason Bitcoin, by the way, is Bitcoin is the shelling point. You guys want to talk about the shelling point? Robert, you know what that is? Yeah, Alex, Alex had to draw, but yeah, I think shelling point is useful. The other secondary question I'd like to add to that is all this sounds like the, you know, one of, if not the biggest rug pull in human yes. history. So obviously the punchline is, you know, stay humble, stack stats, get your dollars out of banks into Bitcoin. Are there other actions, though, that people should be considering in light of all this? Um, yes. So, so, right, exactly. This is a gigantic rug pull. But the thing to remember is sovereign defaults are not actually that uncommon, right? And uh, the U.S. banking system did rug pull American citizens during the mortgage crisis. And the same people who did BLM and said that there were mostly peaceful protests when there's fires burning in the background, those are the ones who are predominant within the state right now. Okay, so it's not actually that implausible. Or if you think about trust in media, right? People used to think the media were like neutral referees. And now they know that they're just like playing for their own team. They're not actually aligned with you. And that's why, you know, trust in media has absolutely collapsed from, you know, 30, 45 percent, you know, 20 years ago to like 10, you know, 15 percent. Now, 85 percent of people don't trust them. Right. So, so the concept of such a rug pull and such a scale yeah, you know, you would have thought you wouldn't have thought your bank would kind of do that to you. It's true. The the stealth, the scale and the speed of this sort of digital Pearl Harbor on, on dollar holders is is bananas, right? But you can actually already see it coming. If you just look at forget about what's on TikTok or you know, TV, but just look for the term discount window and ask yourself why is so much money rushing to the banks it's because they expect all these bank runs and then the question is who can get their money out of the bank and into bitcoin faster because uh if you're just sending it the, the false door is you're sending it to a big bank you're sending it to a gsib you're locking up for that five percent the right door is bitcoin but then what's the next step well the next step is you probably want to be in a crypto-friendly jurisdiction. Did you see my tweet on uh, Texas, Robert? I don't think I did. You also were going to talk about the shelling point, just as a reminder. Oh, sure. Thank you. Yeah. So what's the shelling point? It's like, if you've got a bunch of people, a shelling point is how they coordinate without coordinating. Okay. It's like, uh, you know, you hit the fire alarm and where's everybody going? They're going to the front door and the, like the reassembly point. It's like the, you know, place across the street or something like that. Okay. Peter Thiel talked about the Bitcoin price, the BTC USD price, is the only unfakeable signal in global markets. Everything else is fake. Because, like, you know, obviously Chinese markets are totally fake, and many of the US markets are actually very fake. Uh, but that signal was a signal of exit, and it was very hard to fake because, you know, it was a real signal. And if that moons, if that moons in time, it is a fire alarm that says that something is wrong and that the money is gone. Right. That is the signal that basically says, you know, boom, like this, like, you know, actually they're hyperinflating the currency. They're printing so much and I'm getting to a safe haven. And once people see that mooning, then that becomes something that other people around the world see and other dollar holders see. And they realize, OK, a new reserve currency is being born. OK. And this is actually probably how. Bitcoin becomes what we've always thought it would be, which is the global reserve currency of the world. It's just something that's going to be much more messy, I think, than anybody expected. We thought it'd be much more gradual. We thought it'd happen, you know, over time and so on. And there's gradual aspects of it. Of course, you know, El Salvador has Bitcoin as reserve currency and, you know, um, CAR and Panama's flirting with it. And certainly Florida has uh, Bitcoin mayors. And actually, 
the thing I was just talking about, that really is the second point. So the first point of the shelling point, Bitcoin is the shelling point in the sense that if, as you've already seen, again, this is totally independent of me, right? Totally independent of me, as you've already seen, $150 billion more than 2008 is moving to the discount uh, window now, right? Uh, number two is uh, there's already... Okay, last year, one of the things I talked about last year, and again, I tweet about this stuff and people have put it in place, anti-seizure bills. Are you familiar with that, uh, Robert? Uh, I, I don't think so, actually. Yeah, so basically, the right to buy, sell, send, and receive Bitcoin shall not be infringed, okay? That's like the Zeroth Amendment, okay? That you can't take the money, okay? Um, and uh, the thing about this is, uh, let me see if I can find this. This is like to inhibit an executive order 6102. Yeah, exactly. Why don't you talk about executive order 6102? Go ahead. Tell, tell people. Yeah, so 1933, private gold ownership was outlawed uh, under threat of, I think, 10 years imprisonment or, um, you know, 10 or $20,000 fine, which was a lot of money in 1933. Um, and I think that was said to be to support the war effort or something to that effect, but, you know, Basically, it's, it's it's bullshit, right? It's anti-capitalistic. It was a method to confiscate gold and then reprice it. So they gave everybody, a, I think it was a 75% haircut where gold was priced at $21 an ounce and it got repriced at 37 something like that. Um, a couple of comments on the shelling point. You know, I like to think about it as the lowest common denominator strategy. It's what, if you're playing a game where people can't trust each other and their interests are inherently conflicted, it's kind of the strategy that everyone will default to. Um, you know, in a, in a military sense, you could think that when your enemy starts carpet bombing you, you better build some damn high altitude bombers, right? Pretty quick, right? The, the high altitude bomber is the showing point effectively in that situation. And uh, comment on the Bitcoin price. I, I've described it before as being like an irrepressible barometer for the fragility of the legacy financial system. So, you know, there's a reason governments have gone to great lengths to try and suppress and manipulate the gold price. You could go to a website like GATA.org, G-A-T-A.org. That's the gold antitrust task force, I think is what they're called. Um, you could study things like the London Gold Pool, where uh, governments have colluded to suppress and manipulate price of gold for this very reason, right? You, um, I think Alec, um, Greenspan said this in one of his communications a long time ago that you have to outlaw access to a sound store value for a fiat currency system to work. Because if people have an option to put their money in something safe, right, that can't be in, inflated, confiscated, etc., that's obviously where they're going to move their money. Um, you have to restrict that option in, in order to get people to participate um, in a fiat currency system for a long period of time. Uh, I'll throw it back over to you on that. Yeah. So, so basically, um, the, on the shelling point thing, that's why I'm just saying Bitcoin, Bitcoin only, like, you know, we are all Bitcoin maximalists now. Like, uh, to be clear, I, you know, I personally do believe you're going to need, um, scalable, you know, systems and so on on the other side of this, but right now, um, just get to the exit, have people pile in, and make sure that the thing moons so people know that something's wrong. One thing about this with the, the anti-seizure bills, just talking about that in Executive Order 6102, one of the theses in my book, The Network State, is that uh, you know 1950 is like a peak centralization moment where there is 
one telephone company and um, you know two superpowers and three television stations. And as you go forward and backward in time, uh, you see uh, you know things where where there's uh, the opposite version happening. For example, 1991, the internet frontier opens, but 1890, the American frontier closes. You go forward in time, and you've got like uh, COVID-19. You go backward in time, you've got the Spanish flu. Uh, you go forward in time and you have, um, like, for example, China is a senior partner in the China-Russia alliance. But you go backwards in time and the Soviets, the Russians, are the senior partner in the Russia-China alliance. Or, or for example, you go forward in time and you have India becoming a larger economy than, than Britain. And there's an Indian guy actually now as Prime Minister of Britain. You go backwards in time, you have Britain a larger economy than India and a British guy, you know, going and running um, India, right? And there's actually so many parallels like this. Uh, you know, another version is, you know, in you go forwards in time and you have the New York Times uh, siding with Ukraine versus, uh, you know, Russia. And you go backwards in time and you have New York Times like Walter Durante siding with Stalinist Russia to choke out Ukraine. And it's like this really weird thing where, you know, not all those events are happening in the exact same order. But it's almost like an origami thing where I, I don't pretend to understand it. I just got a list of like 50 of these events. But one of them is, uh, you know, with, with gold, for example, in the late 1800s, there was, uh, you know, William Jennings Bryan and, and there was a anti, you know, uh, gold movement um, where he's like, you know, we're, we're a populist anti-gold movement. And uh, he didn't want to be impaled on a cross gold, wanted people to print the money, et cetera. OK, or the, what we'd call printing money. And uh, here today we have a populist pro-gold movement, which is essentially, you know, Bitcoin and Bitcoin maximalism. And uh, with Executive Order 6102, the reason I think that worked, that was the seizure of gold. And that was when the state was becoming strong. So the centralized centuries, like ramping into 1950, you just have massive, massive, massive centralization. You have these giga states of like, you know, the USA and the USSR and Nazi Germany and China. And so like hundreds of millions of people. That's not what the world used to look like, looked like lots of small states it used to be. So you have this giant centralized century. And in that centralization ramp, centralized states were able to seize the gold from people. And in fact, Executive Order 6102 was like, in some ways, the nicest version of that. You know what the bad version was, Robert? Uh, I, I guess the bad version would have been World War II, right? When Hitler invades Poland and goes to their central bank and seizes all their gold by force. Well, yeah, sure, that's one version. But even the domestic version is what happened in the Soviet Union. You know, like Lenin's hanging order, right? Like go and hang the kulaks and take their farms and, and kill them. You know, hang the kulaks. The, the kulaks were basically like uh, they're basically like entrepreneurs, like farmers in in, in Russia. Uh, or, you know, Mao, he went after the landlords, killed them, took their property. Cambodia, Pol Pot, he went after the guys with glasses. Um, you know, all of these countries, right, there's um, there's a history of asset seizure of, you know, killing the guys who are, you know, upper middle class or even, you know, just, just ambitious in some way. That's unfortunately like the history of many people around the world. Um, that we don't actually hear about too much, you know, like, uh, you know, of course, you know, it is good and we should know everything about fascism. And, you know, with China, that's actually, you know, probably kind of the closest thing to what they are. But we should also know about communism. And, and we don't know enough about that and exactly what happened, despite the fact there's lots of Chinese Americans and Vietnamese Americans and Koreans and, and so on that are, that are victims of that. So the point being that the seizure of assets that FDR executed was like, the least bad version of that. Um, and uh, because it wasn't like, you know, house to house with guns or what have you. 
I think that today, now, so basically one of the things that meant, by the way, is uh, physical gold was defeated by the state in the early 1930s, okay? And after 2008, a lot of gold bugs thought, oh, you know, buy gold, that's going to that's gonna stop the, you know, the, the Fed is going to print so much and gold is going to moon. And it didn't. And one of the reasons it didn't is first, people bought them in what we'd call a custodial way. They buy it like Speeder Gold Trust or something like that, if that's still around. But second is, even if you did buy a physical block of gold, it's not like useful in a modern economy, really. Um, it might be useful like for, for a central bank or something. But, um, you know, first, it's heavy. Second is, it's hard to value for somebody who's just like looking at it, you know, you need like special instruments or whatever to see if it's true gold or fool's gold. Uh, third, you can't really chip off a flake too easily and give it to somebody, right? Fourth is, uh, you know, it's um, it's not something where when you sell it to somebody OTC, you can't get a price for it very easily. You don't have a universal price. All of that kind of stuff is why. Yeah, the, right? the big the big one I would point out, Balaji, is just the fact that it's not portable especially relative to something like Bitcoin. So what happens is there's huge economic advantages to decentralize the custody of gold and trade paper derivatives on top of it. Well, what does that do? That introduces this 100 to 1 you know, paper to real gold market we have today that's used to suppress the price. So obviously Bitcoin doesn't suffer from that, that lack of portability, and that's why I think it's fundamentally different um, in this case. But again, I think the point you're making there is not your keys, not your coin, right? Not your gold, not your gold. The paper certificate's not enough. You have to have the physical gold in your possession, just like you have to have the private keys well, in your possession yeah, so, but to prevent the price manipulation. What I'm saying is, like, physical gold, like, is sort of allowed to stick around because the state hasn't, uh, the state has defeated it. It's in, 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 I would consider it gelded, right? It's not truly, it, it's fine. I'm, I'm glad people are still into gold and so on. Digital gold, however, has not yet been defeated, that is to say, it's not yet uh, like like all of. Go ahead. I was just going to add the central bank, central banks worldwide slash the state. They own about twenty five percent of the total global gold supply. That data might be a little bit old, but that's not the case with digital gold. Yeah, exactly. So the thing is that you know one of the things I have in the network state book is this concept of God state and network. And the question is like, do you what do you think is the most powerful force in the world? Because that informs one's philosophy and way of thinking and so on. Is the most powerful force in the world, almighty God, is it, uh, you know, the U.S. military or, you know, the state's military or is it encryption, right? And each of those gives, that's like God's state network. Those are three very different, you know, like worldviews. And there's fusions of them as they talk about in the book and so on. But, you know, the state beat the people of God in the early 20th century. Like, obviously, you know, the, the Soviet Union, you know, went and killed lots of, you know, religious people. Obviously, the Nazi Germany killed many Jewish people. Um, but uh, the network has not really had the real showdown with the state. That's been like the tension over the last, you know, 10 or 20 years where, you know, like tech companies, open source protocols, all this stuff is kind of running rings around, you know, these uh, like state regulators and these folks with sort of centralized power. And so like the that sort of bubbling kind of thing where there's been many different sort of battlefronts or whatever you want to call them, you know, tensions, points of conflict. Um, and even in the U.S., by the way, you can sort of think of conservatives like Red Tribe is people of God, you know, progressives, Blue Tribe are people of the state, and like Gray Tribe is like people of the network. And of course, there's overlaps and stuff, and that's simplification. But I think one of the fundamental concepts is people of the state think that, you know, violence in some form 
is enough to solve any problem. Whereas like Julian Assange has written that no amount of violence can solve certain math problems, right? And in particular, cannot take the Bitcoin private keys. And we've had 13 years of a good security track record with Bitcoin. And so unlike dollars, you can hit dollars and you can mass inflate them and effectively seize them, but you can't do that for Bitcoin. And so, uh, or at least that is, the, that is the thing that may get tested, right? Like, can you actually seize the Bitcoin? And that's why I think you know, there's both like technological, but then there's also sociopolitical, you know, barriers to that. And that's why I think that Texas GOP thing, Maria asked, like, what are things you do? So buy Bitcoin, but also crypto friendly jurisdictions are probably good to check out. For example, Texas GOP has that language of shall not be infringed. Um, and there's other states that are crypto friendly. For example, Wyoming has a Dow law. Tennessee has a Dow law. Uh, Florida's mayor, you know, not Florida's mayor, Florida's a Miami, Florida's mayor, Francis Suarez, uh, holds Bitcoin, uh, Mississippi and Montana, thanks to, uh, some, you know, great Bitcoin activists have passed crypto mining bills. Right. Um, and, uh, Texas GOP has this. So there's actually quite a few States that have already kind of gotten into cryptocurrency and what have you. And those are probably good places where, you know, like property rights and so on are protected. Um, so I think that's the other kind of thing you think about. And then of course, abroad, there's El Salvador, but there's also UAE, there's, um, you know, like the Palau and Marshall Islands, there's a bunch of these sort of crypto friendly spots around the world. There's Eastern Europe uh, spots there, you know, and uh, so I'd, I'd say those jurisdictions are going to do well in the event that something like this happens because they're crypto friendly and they'll be sort of first movers. I think that's really good advice. Um... And I would say, you know, Nietzsche captured this really well in his old quote that everything that the state has is stolen. Everything it says is a lie. <laughs> and that sounds like a pretty damning uh, indictment uh, on the surface. But I think as we're starting to see in the world, that's pretty damn accurate, especially in times of crisis. So the key here is informing people, right? You need to hold some form of wealth that cannot be easily confiscated. And to that end, I don't think there's anything better in the world than Bitcoin, right? Which is the big punchline here. Uh, we are about 10 minutes over uh, the me, time that we said we would go. Do you have me, any closing remarks? Yes, one more closing remark. So just on that, right? There's actually this guy named Jean-Claude Juncker, and he is uh, a central banker, and I think he's the former head of the, the Eurozone. And his famous quote is, <clears throat> when things get serious, you have to know how to lie. Okay, that's like the central banker quote. Now, why is he saying that? It's actually like, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried saying FTX is fine. Assets are fine. Okay. He's trying to stop people. Look, everything's fine. You don't have to come and don't, you don't have to go and check on your money. It's all here. Don't worry about it. This guy's totally making it up. Competitors going after some false rumors. Okay. And what that's very similar to is, um, you know, like the Jerome Powell or the Federal Reserve Board saying on March 12, 2023, the capital and liquidity positions of the U.S. banking system are strong and the U.S. financial system is resilient. Would they actually have to put that out there unless, you know, and even they've already kind of made stuff up, right? They said uh, they'll make available up to $25 billion. It does not anticipate it will be necessary to draw on those backup funds. So they're just saying, don't worry about it. We've got this backup plan. And on the other hand, they're saying, okay, banks, go and get the money right now. We're going to have a big print, right? Because, you know, they're saying, oh, 25 billion wouldn't be necessary, but now we have this 150 billion tsunami coming, right? So you have to actually look at the the actions, not the words, and they do a lot to kind of cover those actions or announce them, so it's too slow for you to react. And uh, and hopefully, I've given you guys time to react. Okay, um, take a look at some of these graphs. Take a look at the charts. Um, the reason I'm burning this money, one thing I want to be very clear about is 
there's no way on earth that this makes any money because if I'm correct um, or even close to correct, why would I not use the purchasing power to buy more Bitcoin today than, than in the future? A million dollars that buys, you know, 40 Bitcoin or thereabouts, you know, when I, when I did it and, and get one Bitcoin in the future and plus a, I get a million worthless dollars. And the reason is that I'm doing it to ring a fire alarm because I, I do love many, you know, like like things about um, this current world. And I and I do like, uh, you know, I, I was born in the U.S. I, I love many Americans and I think they've been defrauded by the government uh, on this. And I think it's good to ring the fire alarm um, and show that actually something bad is happening. And, uh, you know, the thing is, when I put up the bit signal, this, um, you know, discount window graph had not yet hit. And now that it has, and it looks kind of similar to that bit signal, um, I think it's worth taking a look and, and doing, quote, do your own research if you want. Take a look at how much they're printing, see that it's already beyond 2008, and ask yourself if, uh, if you want to hold USD and, and what's, what's about to happen, or if you want to at least hedge with BTC. I think that is some sound advice. And uh, Balaji, thank you for doing this. Uh, I hope this has been useful and valuable for everyone. And uh, go out there and buy some damn Bitcoin and escape this controlled collapse that appears to be on the horizon. Thanks, guys. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks, guys.